0: Morning. Um, my name is Ray Williams. For most of you know me, some of you don't. Sorry about that. <laughs> um, I've been a member of the church for about uh, ten years now, and currently am serving as a trustee. So, uh, Joshua is in Texas this morning. For those of you that don't know, and uh, he asked if I would deliver a message this morning. So we will be doing that. Um, first thing I'd like to do is let's go ahead and open in some prayer real quick. Dear Heavenly Father, I thank you for this day that we have to come and to worship you together as a body of believers, as we get to enter into your throne room. And Heavenly Father, I pray that as we hear of your word and your scripture this morning, that it will not fall on deaf ears, that we will listen to your voice that you speak through in the scripture, and that we will take it into our hearts. your name we pray, amen. So we're going to be continuing in Hebrews 11, um, verse 32, kind of breaking down this list of heroes that was listed there. So let's go ahead and start by reading that. We're going to start in Hebrews 11, verse 32. And that starts out with, Now what more shall I say? I do not have time to tell about Gideon, Barak, Samson, and Jephthah, about David and Samuel and the prophets, who through faith conquered kingdoms, administered justice, and gained what was promised, who shut the mouths of lions, quetched the fury of flames, and escaped the edge of the sword, who weakness was turned to strength, and who became powerful in battle, and routed foreign armies. Women received back their dead and raised to life again. There were others who were tortured, refusing to be released, so they might gain an even better resurrection. Some faced jeers and flogging, and even chains and imprisonment. They were put to death by stoning, they were sawed in two, they were killed by the sword. They went about in sheepskins and goatskins, destitute and persecuted and mistreated. The world was not worthy of them. They wandered in deserts and mountains, living in caves and holes in the ground. As Joshua spoke here recently, what we see here is a list of us and calls heroes of the faith. And all these individuals have something in common. They all heard some particular promise of God whether it was direct revelation from God or just simply through an understanding of the scripture and the implicit word of God. And they all trusted and believed in that promise. And in his perfect time, God saw fit to fulfill those promises. Now, it didn't always happen in their lifetime. There's a strong implication in chapter 11 that uh, oftentimes these individuals never lived to see the promise of completely fulfilled in their lifetime. But we do know that he keeps his promises and that he did fulfill them. A great example of this is, is a few weeks ago Joshua spoke about Moses, or we heard about Moses here. And Moses uh, had a lot of promises made to him that there was no way it could be fulfilled by the law that God had given him. And he died before even seeing the Holy Land. Before his people were even able to enter it. And yet, God saw fit to give Moses a great gift, in a way. At the Transfiguration of the Mount that we read about in James, there's two individuals there. One of them is Moses, and one of them is Elijah. And in that moment, Moses got to physically see the answer the promises that had been given him. And so we know that God will keep these promises, and they held fast to that all the way to the beginning of the, from the beginning of their faith to the end of their lives. Thus, they have illustrated the definition of faith that we find in Hebrews 11.1. 1. Now faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen, and prove the principles that we find in Hebrews eleven six. 6. But without faith, it is impossible to please him. For he who comes to God must believe that he is, and that he is rewarded of those who diligently seek him. So today we're going to explore one of those heroes in this list, Samuel. So we talked about David, we talked about Samson recently. We're kind of going along in the order that the... Uh, author of Hebrews laid them out here. So we're going to talk about, uh, talk about uh, Samuel. Um, so first, let's kind of look at who was Samuel. Well, if we just sum up the plain facts, he was the first prophet to rise after Moses in Israel. He came at the end of the age of judges and served both as a priest and a prototype king of sorts. This makes him unique among most characters in the Bible, as he was a priest from the tribe of Levi. He was a Nazarite. Like Samson that we talked about a while back, he never cut his hair. Um, He was appointed by God to appoint both first Saul as a king, and later David, after the people began to rebel and reject and wanted an earthly king. Um, his life of service to God occurred during some of the darkest days of the people of Israel. And there was a much about the spiritual condition of his people that uh, discouraged him. And that is exactly why his story is so important to us. And why it's so valuable to us today. We oftentimes forget that... Uh, the people of the past and the people of the Bible that we read about here in these stories, they're the same as us. They had the same kind of struggles, same kind of difficulties ultimately, the same wants, desires. They wanted their families to be secure. They, they wanted a stable government. They wanted a good economy. All these little minor things that we treat, but their day-to-day lives were maybe somewhat different by culture and time, but Ultimately, they were identical to us. And so their story of how they strive through these difficulties, which
1: parallel our own difficulties, um, are extremely valuable.
0: These, simp- these are simple facts about the man, but they don't really explore who Samuel was in depth. What made him tick? What was, why is he so special and remembered in Hebrews? for he is remembered among the people of Israel as one of the greatest figures of the Bible. In fact, Psalm 99, 6-7 says, Moses and Aaron were among his priests, and Samuel was among those who called upon his name. They called upon the Lord, and he answered them. He spoke to them in the cloudy pillar. They kept his testimonies and ordinances he gave them. Indeed, to be placed in the scripture alongside Moses and Aaron meant that Samuel was remembered among the highest of the earthly rankings and importance among the spiritual people of Israel. Even if Moses and Samuel stood before me, my mind would not be favorable to this people, it said in Jeremiah 15.1. And Acts 13.20 tells us that this was the last that he was the last of the great men of his particular era in redemptive history, saying that God tied his people in the period between the judges and the kings, and that, quote, he gave them judges for about 450 years until Samuel the prophet. In fact, Samuel is very unique. He stands in a place of important ministry between two important religious eras of God's work. So he's the last of the judges, so to speak. He he wasn't considered a judge, but he almost filled that role. He came at the very end of the age of judges. And he's there at the very beginning of the age of kings. So it's a unique period, a time of transition. In fact, his influence even extends beyond that time all the way into the very age of grace that we live in today. So what made Samuel so great to the people of Israel? What is it they remember him for? To try to answer that, I want to explore a couple of key points from Samuel's life because I could spend weeks trying to cover the entirety of Samuel's life um, and the importance for it. So what we're going to do is we're going to look at a couple of moments. And we're going to explore what that means for Samuel, what it means for us, and what it means about what the author is trying to say in Hebrews. Most of our information regarding Samuel does come from 1 Samuel. So that's where we're going to be spending the rest of, most of the rest of this sermon. Um, So if you would like to turn to your Bibles in 1 Samuel, and we're going to start at the beginning, both the beginning of 1 Samuel and the beginning of uh, Samuel's life at his birth. And the events leading up to it in 1 Samuel chapter one, verse one. We'll be reading the first eleven verses here to start with. Now there was a certain man from, and excuse me for butchering the words, <laughs> the names. Uh, there was a certain man from Ramathain and a Zophite from the hill country of Ephraim, whose name was El- Elkanah, son of Jer- Jerhoam, the son of Elihu the son of Tohu, the son of Zuth, and Ephraimite. He had two wives. One was called Hannah and the other Peniah. Paniah had children, but Hannah had none. Year after year, this man went up from his town to worship and to sacrifice the Lord Almighty at Shiloh, where Hophni and Phinehas, the two sons of Eli, were priests of the Lord. Whenever the day came for Elkanah to sacrifice, he would give portions of the meat to his wife, Peniah, and to all her sons and daughters. But to Hannah, he gave a double portion because he loved her, and the Lord had closed her womb. Because the Lord had closed Hannah's womb, her rival kept provoking her in order to irritate her. This went on year after year. Whenever Hannah went up to the house of the Lord, her rival provoked her till she wept and could not eat. Her husband Elkanah would say to her, Hannah, why are you weeping? Why don't you eat? Why are you downhearted? Don't I mean more to you than ten sons? Once, when they had finished eating and drinking in Shiloh, Hannah stood up. Now Eli the priest was sitting on his chair by the doorpost of the Lord's house. In her deep anguish, Anna prayed to the Lord, weeping bitterly, and she made a vow, saying, Lord Almighty, If you only look upon your servant's misery and remember me, and not forget your servant, but give her a son, then I will give him to the Lord for all the days of his life, and no razor will ever be used upon his head. So what we see here is in Samuel chapter 1, we're told about Hannah and Paniah, the, two, um, the wife of the man, um, Elkanah, Elkanah's other wife, Panaya, was described as a rival to Hannah. Um, you know, So it's hard for us to kind of remember this. Um, we don't have multiple wives in our culture. Um, but because she had sons, and they were always rivaling for status in the household, Panaya used that as a way to goad over Hannah. Peniah, basically what's being described here, torturing her, teasing her. She's basically being verbally bullied. Hannah is. Um, Severely, to the point where she has become so miserable about it, she can't even eat. And she's in despair and weeping. So Hannah is desperate. And so they go to Shiloh, and at the time... Shiloh was where the ark was located, henceforth where the high priest was located, where you had to go to make your sacrifices. Um, so during a visit to Shiloh, where the ark was located, Hannah made a vow to God. She became, before the tabernacle, downtrodden, weeping bitterly, and she prayed. Now there's some indication, while well, looking at the original text, that you know she prayed quietly um,
1: and while weeping, and she lets out a prayer. As it's,
0: as it's recorded, she says, O Lord of hosts, if you will indeed look on the affliction of your maidservant and remember me and not forget your maidservant, but give your maidservant a male child, then I will give to him the Lord of the days all of his life, and no razor shall come upon his head. Now, what happens here, though, is, as we continue in, in uh, Samuel, is that Hannah wasn't alone. You know, uh, Eli, the priest, was sitting on a chair. And when he hears Hannah doing this and sees her weeping, he doesn't think of a woman in distress praying. Eli's first impression is that Hannah must be drunk. He thinks the drunk has wandered into the temple and is sitting there and uh, praying. Now, what we are told um, is that Eli is a very self-indulgent, an unworthy man. And he chooses to scold Hannah for her perceived drunkenness. Hannah however tells him that she's not drunk but rather praying out her heart to God and Eli responds then to go in peace and that the God of Israel grant your petition which you have asked of him in verse 17 Now even though Eli is not a good man even though he's not a good priest and he hasn't been faithful to God he's got two sons that as we'll talk about later are definitely not uh, um Followers of God, yet are still priests. Uh, He was nevertheless the high priest at the time. So Hannah considers that the high priest of Israel has just told her that her petition will be granted and considers that an affirmation from God. So what's important about that is she goes away believing that God would surely now give her what she asked. She has faith. In that moment, in a promise that God has delivered her. She sees Eli's answer to her as a promise from God. And she has faith in that. And she was gifted for what she asked. She was gifted a baby boy, which she named Samuel, which means heard by God. So from the very beginning, Samuel's very existence and birth, just like Moses, had been shaped by his mother's faith. This is key, of course. It provides an example for us. What we do can matter even in the smallest of things. How we live our lives can change every life around us. The smallest details, the smallest act of faith could have a huge impact upon our children, upon our neighbors, upon our brothers, our sisters, our families, and our communities. Far reaching than how small it seems does. To, to Hannah, she only saw it as, I have a child, God has blessed me with this, and now I won't be bullied. And God has blessed me with this, so I will honor that. But what she did not know was what Samuel would go on to do. How God would use him. As soon as Samuel's old enough to be weaned, she takes him to Eli. And she gives him to him to be raised in the priesthood. And at that time she does so saying, O oh my Lord, as your soul lives, my Lord, I am the woman who stood by you here praying to the Lord. For this child I prayed, and the Lord has granted me my petition, which I asked of him. Therefore, I has also lent him to the Lord. As long as he lives, he shall be lent to the Lord. That's First Samuel 26-28. Chapter 1, 26 to 28. Now, think about how hard this must have been for Hannah to do. She loves her son, just as any mother does. And she's taking him to Shiloh where, yes, by lending him to the Lord and putting him into the priesthood, she will still get to see him occasionally. They visit Shiloh, and she will get to see her son and spend time with him, undoubtedly. But for the most part, she will not be actively involved in raising him. And he's just a young boy, barely past weaning. Yet she makes this sacrifice because it is what the Lord had wanted. She had prayed and promised that to God. So not only is she thankful that God carried out her promise, she is carrying out her promises to God. Now Samuel is often remembered for his prayers throughout the book of Samuel. I feel that this is a trait he must have learned and inherited from his mother. Because what we see here next is that Hannah and her husband stay and they worship for a while. And Hannah delivers one of the most poignant prayers in the Bible. She says, My heart rejoices in the Lord. My horn is exalted in the Lord. I smile at my enemies because I rejoice in your salvation. No one is holy like the Lord. For there is none beside you, nor is there any rock like our God. Talk no more so very proudly. Let no arrogance come from your mouth, for the Lord is the God of knowledge, and by him actions are weighed. The bows of the mighty men are broken, and those who stumbled are girded with strength. Those who were full have hired themselves out for bread, and the hungry have ceased to hunger. Even the barren has become seven. And she who has many children has become feeble. The Lord kills and makes alive. He brings down to the grave and he brings up. The Lord makes poor and makes rich. He brings low and lifts up. He raises the poor from the dust and lifts the beggar from the ash heap to set them among princes and make them inherit the throne of glory. For the pillars of the earth are the Lord's, and he has set the world upon them. He will guard the feet of his saints, but the wicked shall be silent in darkness. For by strength no man shall prevail. The adversaries of the Lord shall be broken in pieces. From heaven he will thunder against them. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth, and he will give strength to his king and exalt the horn of his anointed. That's first Samuel two one through ten.
1: What we see here is this prayer of exaltation. she's rejoicing in the Lord she's rejoicing in his rulership over her. She smiles at her enemies, she said, because she knows
0: that the Lord is her salvation. So she's not happy because now she has this thing over Paniah, which could be seen as her rival, her enemy. She's excited because she knows she can trust in God and that there's no enemy that can stand against the ultimate thing. Even if she was to die in the face of her enemies,
1: she knows that God is her ultimate salvation. She, she uh, um,
0: knows describes him as a rock and describes how there's no one ultimately hungry. And almost her words are almost prophetic. She speaks about him thundering. And if we study Samuel's life in depth, we'll see that there's times when the Lord speaks using thunder. Now, we're going to move on here and see, though, that as time goes on, to paraphrase, as I said, we don't have time to read everything about Samuel's life here. So we'll, we'll, we'll kind of paraphrase what happens next. So Samuel is raised in the service of the Lord under Eli. However, we have already covered that Eli was not a worthy man. Eli had two sons, both also priests, and they were also wicked men. They were sexually immoral and greedy. They used their position as priests to manipulate and take advantage of the believers. They came to the temple. Now, God even tries to warn Eli that he had tired of this at one point. He sends someone to speak to Eli, and Eli doesn't listen. He sends the man away. And he continues, not chastising, not disciplining his sons, not taking his job seriously. And it is at this time when God calls to Samuel. He calls Samuel into a life of service to him truly and greatly. Now, what's important to think about and to remember here is that this is a time then of great corruption among the rulership of Israel. It is a time of great corruption within the church. What we know is that there's enemies at all sides of the people of Israel.
1: And in the midst of that, God calls someone to his service.
0: But it's unexpected. Unexpected. He doesn't summon a great king that's going to come in and save his people or another judge that's going to come in and save them the way
1: he has done before. He calls someone to do something simple and someone that no
0: one would expect that he would call. Now, we have to remember a few important things about Samuel before we discuss his calling here and his reaction to it. First, we need to remember that Samuel was just a boy. Scholars tell us that Samuel was most likely 11 years old when this event occurs. It's also important to remember that he was in the service to Eli and Eli's sons, and he was most likely not treated well by them. He was basically used as a servant to do things they didn't want to do. And he is reliant upon them for everything. The roof over
1: his head, the clothes on his back, the food he eats. So he is in a way beholden to these people. So think about something here. What were you like at 11 years old? Or what if
0: you are close to that age, what are you like now in your life? Imagine you're just a boy. Away from your family already. In a place that you don't
1: uh, want to be most likely. Not cared for. Alone. Scared. It's also important to remember that God chose to call a boy for a reason.
0: Because he knew what the life of this child that would grow into a man could accomplish for him in an outlife of faith. And he knew what this person would become. Imagine if, as we discuss here, Samuel shirks away from that because I'm just a boy, I can't do anything. He shirks away from God and his call here. Imagine what
1: that would do. We wouldn't have David. We wouldn't have the entire history of the Bible. So it'd be a shame to not live a life of total commitment to God, no matter
0: where we're at in our life. So what we're going to see is that God called the young child while he was asleep at night. Samuel keeps thinking it's Eli calling out to him. He hears a voice in the night. He wakes up. And he thinks it's Eli. And so he would run into Eli's room. And he would say, what do you want? <laughs> Essentially. And
1: Eli tell him to go back to bed. He hadn't said anything. And after this happens three times, Eli instructs Samuel to say something. I think it would be good if we all said, when we hear that
0: voice, that tugging, Speak, Lord, for your servant hears. And that's from 1 Samuel 3, nine, And that's when God speaks to Samuel. Speaks to him directly in a physical voice. Samuel has a direct revelation from God. And he tells Samuel, Behold, I will do something in Israel at which both ears of everyone who hears it will tingle in that day. I will perform against Eli all that I have spoken concerning his house from beginning to end. For I have told him that I will judge his house forever for the iniquity which he knows because his sons have made themselves vile and he has not restrained them. And therefore, I have sworn to the house of Eli that the iniquity of Eli's house shall not be atoned for by
1: sacrifice or by offering forever. That's from uh chapter 3 verse 11 through 14.
0: In the morning, Eli comes to Samuel and he wants to know what the Lord said to him. Naturally, little Samuel's afraid to tell him. How um, naturally he would be. I mean He's just been delivered by a message from God to tell Eli that I'm going to judge you and your sons and that you're going to be barred from heaven. That there is no hope for you, that God has judged you. So you can, can you imagine what it would take for Samuel to tell Eli what
1: the Lord had told him? How much fear... He must have had about that. This
0: is true oftentimes when God calls us to do something. If it's anything of great importance, we will have a fear of it because God does great things through the most simplest of tasks. In the grand scheme of things, this isn't as important as some other things Samuel goes on to do, it seems like. You know, It's just simply delivering a simple message. But for Samuel, the risk is great.
1: In this earthly manner, Samuel is reliant on everything
0: from Eli. But what we see is that rather than being afraid, lying to Eli, hiding to Samuel what he chooses, he chooses to trust God fully and completely. He chooses to take a leap of faith. And he delivers the message to Eli. Eli hears the message and he responds, It is the Lord.
1: Let him do what seems good to him. Now also remember, Samuel's just 11 years old.
0: And at this point, we know that he dedicates himself, though, to a life of simple obedience to God. And we know this because the scripture tells us this. In chapter 3, verse 19, it says, So Samuel grew, and the Lord was with him, and let none of his words fall to the ground. Samuel dedicates himself to the Scripture and to God and to living a life of obedience. And we also know then, because of this act of faith that led to a life of obedience and servitude to the scripture, Samuel chose to lead, it leads to a bit of a turning point in the history of the people of Israel. So remember, the high priest and his sons, the priests at the Ark of the Covenant were vile men. This was leading to corruption and spiritual decay throughout the people. And now, one of the priests at the temple was an actual man of God. Living in faith. Word spreads of this. Um chapter three verse twenty tells us and all Israel, from Dan to Beersheba, knew that Samuel had been established as a prophet of the Lord. Then the Lord appeared again in Shiloh, for the Lord revealed himself to Samuel in Shiloh by the word of the Lord, and the word of Samuel came to all of Israel. That's from three twenty through four one. Kind of Taking some pieces out of there. In time, the priesthood of Eli and the life of his two wicked sons was brought to a terrible end. So God fulfilled the promise he had offered. He fulfilled the word that he had delivered through Samuel. The Ark of the Covenant eventually is captured by Philistines. And the time seems very dark. Eventually, the arcs were covered, and because God still loved this wayward people, he keeps his promises to them, and God claims on the life of this child Samuel, growing quickly into a man, seemed clear to all. And no doubt, Samuel grew up with faith in the promises of God towards him and those that had been given to his mother. He serves as the first prophet to his people, delivering the word, and eventually he becomes incredibly discouraged by them. As we talked about, when we talked about David, before David was Saul, and before that, the people of Israel looked at the other nations around them. They, they have kings. and Instead of desire, and desire only to be ruled by God, they desire to be ruled by a king. And they begin to demand it. And they come to Samuel and they ask for this. And Samuel is disappointed in their lack of faith in their Lord. He takes his petitions to God, and God tells him to appoint Saul as a king. And so Samuel does so. His heart is downtrodden about this. And so God tells Samuel, don't worry, I don't hold you accountable for the sins of the people. I will judge them in time. And Samuel holds his faith, and he appoints Saul as king. But Saul does not end up being a good king. He doesn't obey God. He is one of those kind of individuals that the people wanted him because he was charismatic. He knew how to put on a good show and say the right things. He stood at the front of the line in battle. He was a good politician. But he was not a man that obeyed God. He would pretend to make a show of worshiping God, but really only give him penance and not follow his commands. God, when God commands that Saul kill the Amalekites completely and fully because of their wickedness, Saul instead chooses to make peace with them and make a deal with the Amalekite king to allow their influence to continue to poison the faith of Israel. In defiance of a direct order by Saul. And Samuel is forced by his own hand to kill the Amalekite king with a sword. He invites him to a chamber and he hacks him to pieces in order to fulfill the Lord's word. This is something that greatly distressed Samuel, but he felt he had no choice but to live a life of faith. Eventually, As God begins to tire of Saul, he raises David, as we know about, and he instructs Samuel to anoint David as king. And this places Samuel in a very difficult place, because Saul is the current ruler and king. And he sees this as an act of betrayal and rebellion. And he places himself between faith to God and faith to his king. He has a split loyalty and he places his very life in danger. Caught between the wrath of Saul and the will of God. Yet, he chooses to not let his faith waver. He chooses instead to follow the will of God and to live that simple life of obedience that he had followed since he was just 11 years old. Now these are the acts of Faith, for which Samuel is most often spoken about. Most people speak about the later acts of his life and the pointing of David and Kings. You no, know, it's exciting stuff, right? It's big things. It's world changing. There's also one other distinction Samuel has. He's the only prophet to deliver a message from beyond the grave, in a manner of speaking. As it becomes more and more evident that God had called David, that he was removing Saul, Saul becomes desperate. He does something that to a follower of God and the people of Israel would be considered unthinkable. He goes to a spiritualist, a medium, a witch, and asks her to call upon Samuel. Now, spiritualists, mediums, witches don't actually have the power to call spirits from the beyond. But she, this woman made a living faking it. Never heard of that, right? It doesn't happen today still. And here comes her king before her. Man has the right to exe- have her executed if he believes that she's trying to fool him. In his desperation, asks her to call Samuel. So can you imagine this woman sitting here and she's trying to think of what to do? How would she fake an appearance of Samuel on the words that would be said? So it must have come as a great shock to her when Samuel actually shows up, when he actually speaks. What's remarkable is that God allowed this to happen. He did that, though, so that Saul would hear his words and so that he could show his faithful promises are completed. The witch shrieks in terror because Samuel actually appeared, and just as we expect, He was still faithful to God. Saul asks him what to do, and Saul says, Why do you ask me? See, the Lord has departed from you and has become your enemy, and the Lord has done for himself as he spoke by me. For the Lord has torn the kingdom out of your hand and given it to your neighbor David. Because you did not obey the voice of the Lord, nor execute his fierce wrath upon Amalek, Therefore, the Lord has done this thing to you this day. Moreover, the Lord will also deliver Israel with you into the hand of the Philistines. And tomorrow, you and your sons will be here with me. The Lord will also deliver the army of Israel into the hand of the Philistines. And the next day, Samuel's words to Saul from beyond the grave as spoken in 1 Samuel 26, 16 through 19, ended up being proven true. God's promises are always fulfilled in his time. While Samuel is remembered for these acts, and often the often most spoken of is it later in his life, I argue, though, that perhaps one of the greatest acts was that first act of faith as an 11 year old child. Because oftentimes the first step on a journey is the most difficult, is the most simple, but it can have an impact. At that moment, what Samuel really did is he made the decision to put himself aside, to put his own concerns, his own well-being aside, to obey God, to fully trust him for everything. Because Samuel had no expectation other than that he could have been cast out by Eli or had his food simply cut off or anything else that could have happened to him. And so he chose that even if that was something that was at risk, that he was going to set that aside and trust in God to provide everything, if need be, for him. Because to him it was more important to follow the will of God in that moment and to listen to that voice and have that faith than to disobey to seek after himself. He truly set God as the king of his heart and trusted him. And that trust, that small act of faith, built a bigger and bigger faith that changed the entire world and the entire history of everything we know. The entire history of God's redemptive work was set upon some of the foundations that he set.
1: So what does this teach us? Samuel, he had a faith in the promises
0: of God. It brought him through times of disappointment and darkness, a faith that proved itself his whole life long and even beyond. And God proved true to be everything, he told Samuel. And the difficulties of the times do not change the promises of God. There is nothing above what God can accomplish. So what does it mean for us to, to respond as Samuel did when we hear that call, that small voice? What does it mean today to respond that way? So if we look at like an 11-year-old child What ways could God be calling us? Obviously, he's probably not going to be calling us to appoint a king or change the future of our country, but you never know. It could be something as simple as that 11-year-old child. You've made a friend. You discover he doesn't know Jesus. You really like this friend, right? But you don't want to maybe say something that might upset him. Maybe he won't be your friend no more. But yet you really like him, and you know you love Jesus too, and and. You want him to know about that, so maybe you shy away from speaking to him. But that's not what God would call you to do. He would call you to, like Samuel, take that step. Because you love him and you love God, you would take that step and you would share your faith with him. It could be as simple as in our life choosing to actively model a life of obedience to God for our children and for our neighbors. In this modern day and age, I can think of a great way. We, in this nation in particular, have become divided by ideals and politics. And rightfully so, sometimes people feel as if the world's against them, and there's been enemies created. God would call us all to look at each other through his lens, he would call us to take that road of love and simply treat everyone as one of his children. That doesn't mean we have to agree. (laughs) And that's the difficult thing and the thing of faith. And it's difficult. And sometimes it means to put ourselves at risk. Sometimes he might ask you to make a financial risk, right? And that could be a difficult thing to do in uncertain times. But if he does, and you know this is a voice from God, who are you to challenge God's will and question if it is legitimate? So how do we know, how do we hear that voice of God? It is through the scripture he has delivered us. It is through the reading of his word that he delivered through the apostles and through the writers of the Bible. And we, when we read his scripture, we hear his voice. And what does it mean to actually hear? It means not just to simply read it, to take it in, but to let it dwell within you, to let it change how you look at things, to let it change who we are. Because you never know when a simple act of faith Could change the world when it might change things farther than you can reach i've been blessed in my lifetime to see such a few incidences where i did something prompted by god that i didn't think anything of at the time it was a little scary yet it's had far reaching more complications over the years than i could have ever imagined And that's a true blessing when you get to see those things and the fulfillments of God's promises. I'll I'll share one because it's came to my my light recently. Um, When I was in high school, late high school, a fairly new believer, attending the first church I had ever attended, we were uh, having church in a building that was near the university district in Missoula. And uh, I went out with a a couple of individuals out on the street, and we were just kind of standing around chatting before the service before the morning in the building that we were meeting in. And an individual comes walking down the street by himself. And for some reason, I'm looking at him, and I just felt prompted by God that I should go up to him and talk to him. So I walked up to him, introduced myself, and he responded to me in some fairly broken English, but, you know, an accent, but otherwise obviously well-educated. And he was a an Asian man. His name ended up being Billy Sanjay. I call him Billy. I can't pronounce his real name. <laughs> uh, but he went by Billy with everyone. He was an exchange student at the university. And here he was alone, and he was just looking for anybody to be his friend. He'd been weeks at the university there and hadn't made any friends. He's halfway around the world, first time away from his home on his own. And all I did was simply be nice to him, and he asked what we were doing, and I told him, and I invited him into church. He ended up hearing the word of the Lord and accepting Christ that day. It was the first time he'd ever heard the gospel. Uh, for those that don't know, Malaysia is mostly a Muslim country. Buddhism is second. The area of the country he came from was mostly Buddhist. Um, he ended up living seven years in the United States. He met another Malaysian woman. Um, and uh, they married, Mei Ling, and they had uh, several children. And... Uh, her family came, was brought over during uh, at Easter when she announced that her marriage, that she was going to be marrying him. Uh, they were appalled at this, being Muslim. And uh, they came to uh, stop her, um, convince her that uh, she was not going to marry him because that was also the first time she shared that she was a Christian and so was he. And so they came over at Easter and... They're spending every bit of time with them, trying to convince her, you know, to come back home with them now, to get away from this horrible Western influence, and it happened to be at Easter, and they went to a showing of the Passion Play, and they ended up becoming Christian, and, uh, they ended up giving their lives to God. He ended up selling his business he had at the time, her father did, and, uh, starting a new business based on rhino spray paint truck linings. Um, he fell in love with fishing. We were good friends. Um, we, we spent a lot of time in the woods traipsing together and fishing and hunting. and Just a simple thing. It was nothing, you know? It was nothing, right? Well, eventually, Billy apply- graduates from high school. He has a master's or from college. He has a master's degree. He applies to become a U.S. citizen, and it is denied. His wife, his child was born here. He'd spent seven years of his life here, but it's denied. And he struggled with this. We all struggled with this. They had to move back to Malaysia. and It was denied mostly because uh, Billy's father, which disowned him because he had become Christian, was a a former officer in the Chinese military. They were Chinese, Malaysian. And uh, because his uh, father had been a high-ranking officer, they, they denied, even though they gave him a, visa for student, they denied citizenship. And so Billy was downtrodden. He goes home to Malaysia. He tries several jobs. They don't work out. His life is going nowhere. And one day he shares his faith with someone else, risking his life, really. Not a popular thing to do. Even though there is Christianity in Malaysia, it's, it's not popular. And this Muslim man comes to accept God. And start a faith with them. And eventually there's 10 of them meeting in a home. Eventually there's 20 meeting in a home. Eventually there's a church. Their church is burned down at one point, being blamed for a drought that occurred and crops that were failing. They move to somewhere else. They start again. And God provides. He ends up becoming a pastor, which he never had any intention of ever doing in his life and leading this church. And the church grows. And recently I learned that he is to lead an expedition into Vietnam, and that for years he's been reaching out to the underground church in Vietnam. And through this, through that simple moment of faith, God used that to build a faith in him that reached out to a whole group of people that would have never known him. So who are we to deny God when he gives that voice to us? When we hear that small voice, who are we to say that we think we know better than him? It could be something in the most simplest of things, and you think it could have no
1: consequence, but it could have far-reaching consequence. So how will you respond when God calls you? How will you answer? Let us pray. Dear Heavenly
0: Father, we come before you. We are all broken sinners, Heavenly Father, and we come before you and thank you for the grace you have given us to lead us to salvation. We pray that we will be humble servants of yours, that we will accept your voice, that we will listen truly to you, that we will read your scripture and realize it is you reaching out to speak to us. That you yearn to rule in our hearts. Heavenly Father, we give you rulership over us and over this church and over our community for it is all yours and we have nothing without you. You are our everything. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the blessings you have given us And we thank you for the hard times as well. We thank you when it rains and when there is drought. We thank you when COVID strikes us and when there's political strife. And we thank you when the milk and honey, so to speak, flows.
1: Heavenly Father, we lift you up this day and we praise your name. Amen.